When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Awesomes, this is Meg Teets, and welcome back to another episode of our Extra Awesome series. From time to time, we take a break from our regular Friday schedule and talk to interesting people who are doing awesome things in the world. So, Awesomes, hang tight. We're going to get to today's guest in just a minute. Today, I'm so honored to be joined by Dr. Michael Reichert. Dr. Reichert is a psychologist who's the founding director of the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls' Lives at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a clinical practitioner specializing in boys and men, and he has conducted extensive research globally. Dr. Reichert, thank you so much for taking time to come to Sorta Awesome. Hi, Meg. I'm really glad to be talking with you and appreciate the the opportunity to uh speak with your listeners. Well, the reason that you're here is your latest book just came out at the beginning of April, and it's called How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. Awesome. You who are listening know that I myself am a mom of four. Two of those four kids are boys. And so Dr. Reichert, your work in this book made my ears perk up right away. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My older two children are girls, and so we've been navigating the world of teen and tween girls and all of the issues that go along with that and the joys and the pain of that. Now that my sons, they're twins, they're six, I feel like, okay, now we're getting into a whole new world when it comes to parenting. So I cannot wait to talk with you some more in depth about some of the fundamentals that formed your message for how to raise a boy. But Before we get to that, I was wondering if you could just share with us a little bit about your background, your work at the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls' Lives that you are currently doing. Sure, happy to. Um, So I uh, first I'll I'll, I'll share just personal, uh, 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 the important personal um, note that I am the father of two uh, adult young men, and I have a grandson who's two and a half years old. I seem to be doing boys. Um, <laughs> and it, it, it actually comes on top of being one of five boys in a family of six. So, oh, wow. Uh, lot of, oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah a lot of, lot of, lot of boy, boydom in my life. And then I, I became a psychologist and found myself working at a boys school outside of Philadelphia, about a thousand boys from ages three through 18. 
And that school asked me to create uh, a a more rigorous uh, um, uh, uh, investigation of boys' developmental and educational needs. That's what that's that that center at that one school is what grew into the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls Lives now at 10 different schools across the country connected to Penn. But uh, at the time that we, we, we founded it, you know, it was a time in the early 90s when we were still, I think, learning an awful lot and, and really fighting through a lot of nonsense and stereotype and cliche and ideology about boys and who they were and what they needed. Um, you know, there was a lot of emotional investment in uh, perpetuating a certain outlook on who boys were and what they needed to reproduce from one generation to the next, essentially the same old, same old. The problem was that it wasn't working very well. And whether it was education or health or virtue, what we were finding was that uh, uh, those outcomes, when they came to young males, were problematic, and and yet we weren't really being um, honest with ourselves about what it was in the design of boyhood, the nurture of our sons, that was producing these failed outcomes. Mm. And and that's really, I think, why I wrote this book. I realized that there was a new science of of boyhood that had developed in the last twenty or so years since the the first generation of books about boys came out in the late 90s and that uh, we needed to we needed to make that that understanding that perspective uh, more widely available basically meg we needed to get honest about the fact that the boyhood that still largely dominates boys boys development boys nurture boys education it wasn't designed uh, with boys in mind it was designed to produce another purpose to fit boys into uh, roles, and um, uh, and 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 you know it it routinely produces uh, losses and casualties. And what I felt that what I felt was that that uh, this time uh, in history may be the very best time to be raising a son. The, the women's movement has cast a light on boys falling behind, behaving badly, you know, forces like the Me Too movement, the Title IX movement on college campuses, we are essentially shining a light on these these uh, uh, negative um, outcomes. And we're in a position, I think, to ask more vigorously, what's going on? How are we doing this wrong? And what do we have to do to get it right? Yes. Yeah. I, I know as a woman myself, and again, as a mother of daughters, the Me Too movement has really given voice to a lot of experiences that maybe had not been explored in the past. But like you just said, it also opened up a new vein of conversation in terms of boys and young men and adult men. And what messaging are they receiving in our culture that is a contributor to some of the things that are happening um, with power dynamics and, and all of these things that the Me Too movement really explores. And it's like it opens the vein of conversation and asks questions like how 
do, you know, sweet boys that are, you know, playing at our feet one day as, you know, toddlers grow up and have the capacity to do some things that can be very damaging. So it asks a lot of questions, but then it's like, okay, but so then what are the answers? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to just, I, I just want to say that, that it's actually more than the messages. I mean, that's the, uh, I think that's the myth or that's still, I think, in the fog about mm. about um, how we actually are are doing boyhood. It's not just the messages we're, we're we're sending our sons. It's the world, the architecture of boyhood that we create. That boys, innocent boys, come into and find themselves required, pressured, forced uh, to uh, adopt you know a set of uh, relationships and behaviors and attitudes that really run counter to their very fundamental natures mm. yeah we actually yeah. we actually violate boys' human natures routinely, and then we're surprised that there are negative outcomes such a powerful statement it actually gave me chills to think about because again those of us who are listening who are moms or even if you've spent time around. Um, young boys in any capacity, classrooms or whatever, you do, you see, like you just said, they come into the world with this innocence. And then what happens in their journey through life? I Let's just dig right into it. What What are some of the big fundamentals that you learned through your own research? Um, and then, you know, kind of extrapolated and put together to create the message behind how to raise a boy. I would love to hear what some of your sort of like key takeaways would be. You know, there's, there's different places I could start, but let me start with a global study of boys education that I did with a couple partners back in 2007, 2008. Okay. There were lots of concerns at the time about boys falling behind, boys underachievement, the gender achievement gap, um, and lots of panic really about, you know, what do we do? We're, we're in a knowledge economy where, you know, doing well, learning, uh, gaining skills are uh, more and more important. And boys are, are, many boys are failing at that most most important task. What can we do to improve boys' education? And uh, what we did uh, is we decided that in every classroom, every school, some boys are, are flourishing. And let's build a theory of boys' education from stories of what's working. Mm-hmm. So we surveyed 1,500 boys and 1,000 of their teachers in 18 different schools in six different countries in an online survey and follow-up focus groups and meetings. And we basically asked one question, tell us what's working. And what we found from that study, just to, just to you know, it, this is described in detail in, in a book that's titled Reaching Boys, Teaching Boys, but it's basically stories where three major themes stood out. And the first two themes had to do with the types of lessons and the approach of the teacher uh, to the design of a lesson that reliably worked to engage boys. Mm -hmm. And both boys and teachers really overlapped in how they described those successful lessons. But the third theme in in, uh, these stories came almost exclusively from the boys themselves, not from the teachers. 
when teachers asked, answered the question, what was working, what was going well, they tended to talk in technical detail about the design of the lesson, the theories they were following. What boys talked about in great detail was the personality, the mood, the teacher himself or herself. And uh, what we realized was from these vivid, robust stories of boys being transformed, not so much by the lesson as by the teacher first, what we realized was that boys are relational learners. That if you want to get to first base with a boy, if you want to engage a boy in a project of learning, whether it's on a track team and you're wanting him to you know, improve his speed or a math class, you know, to solve problems or poetry class to write, you know, if you want to engage a boy in some activity, if you want him to go to that vulnerable place where he doesn't know how to do something and he has to depend upon you to learn that new set of skills, you first have to have a connection with him. He has to, he has to believe that you know him and you care about him. That is so fascinating. It very much mirrors an experience from my own personal life. My husband, for 11 years, was a college football coach. And so there we go. Yep. his main focus in life was 18 to 21, 22-year-old young men. And at the beginning of every football season before they would, you know, really start learning the actual, like the X's and O's of the the defensive scheme they were running. They, he would create, you know, kinds of um, situations where he was in engaging with them and getting to know them, getting really, you know, really getting up into their lives, figuring out who they are, where they're from, you know, building that connection. And he has said time and again, that from that place of really being very intertwined in their lives, then he could coach them in the fundamentals of football and get them to be the athletes they needed to be on the field. But it all started long before they got on the field. It started in those, I mean, he wouldn't, he would never call it relationship building activities, (laughs) but that was really what he was doing. He was really investing in their personal lives before they started to work on their football life together. Yeah. He understood, you know, he, he, he understood or, you know, his understanding had evolved in, in the trenches with the boys, young men that, you know, before they were really going to, uh, be influenced by him, he had to build up some traction. Yes. And and the way to do that was to communicate to them that he knew them, that he cared about them, that he had their interest in mind, and that they could trust him to lead them toward their goals. Yeah. And and so, Meg, that insight that boys are relational learners as I sat back after the study was over and we wrote it up and communicated it back to the you know various, various folks that were interested, I sat back and I realized that not only are boys relational learners, but boys are relational, period, mm. and that we typically don't see them that way. Yeah. We, we, don't, we, we tend to be uh, in a fog of, of stereotype, archetype, and we think of boys... It's almost non-relational. You know, right. the Lone Ranger is sort of the stereotype that drives our, our, our treatment of boys from very, very early ages. In the book, I talk about a research study that uh, uh, someone did um, where they had a, a 
a, a mother carrying an infant dressed in white coming into a doctor's waiting room, a hidden video camera running. And the mother would, uh, when the nurse would come out and say, Mrs. So-and-so, you can see the doctor now, she would turn to someone in the waiting room and she would say, would you mind holding my daughter? Or mm -hmm. would you mind holding my son? And, and she would go away for a few minutes and the video cameras would run. And what the video camera recorded were uh, a treatment of the child uh, that was really different depending on whether the child was identified as a male or a female. Wow, from infancy. From infancy on. I had a, another friend, um, a friend who was a biology teacher and was pregnant with twins. Um, but in her case, unlike yours, um, one was a boy and one was a girl. And she said, I know which one's the boy. I said, how can you tell? She said, he's the one who kicks me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We, we really believe, Meg, that, that the boys are innately, hormonally, anatomically wired, and that their, their biology is destiny. Mm. And that we, can, we, can, we, we need to just simply uh, accommodate ourselves to what we believe those biological differences mean. And, and we really think that they are in the lead when it comes to male development. Now, we no longer believe that about girls and women. We've, we, 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 we don't because, you know, it's been completely disproven. Um, exactly. You know, whether it's, it's Title IX and women's sports and the, just the way that, you know, uh, track and, and basketball records have just changed dramatically in the years since uh, Title IX was put in place. Or, you know, academic successes since, uh, you know, discrimination uh, was reduced and, and women are given more and more opportunities to go to, you know, to succeed or leadership opportunities or vocational opportunities. Lots and lots has changed. We no longer say that biology is destiny, that a woman is restricted in terms of what she can aspire to by the fact that, you know, she has an anatomy and a, a certain hormonal uh, design. Um, but we still believe that about boys, and we still maintain wow. that's true. And to my mind, that's simply a prejudice. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the folks that in, in the neuroscience field, there's a relatively new field called interpersonal neuroscience. And basically what they tell us is experience is biology. Our brains are plastic. They grow in the direction that we use them. If we believe that boys are not emotional and boys are not verbal and boys are not relational, and therefore we don't provide them with experiences that let them practice those different skills, sure enough, their brains are going to look different in those areas. That is amazing and definitely not... You know, not the kind of science that I grew up understanding for sure. This idea that what we experience is actually actively shaping our brains and how they work. The, wow. the plasticity of the brain is the most marked feature that we know about brains. And, and yet we still have lots of folks that, that, you know, do PET scans of different types of brains and they notice differences and they say these, these differences are what actually drives uh, male behavior, female behavior in these different directions, rather than concluding that the different experiences that we have provided for boys and girls are actually building differences in, in brain structure. That's pretty incredible. Pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. It's a, it's a, <laughs> I mean, it's a, like I said, I think it's a wonderful time 
to be raising a boy because we are rethinking basic, uh, uh, you know, basic assumptions. All right. Hang tight. Awesomes. We'll be back with Dr. Reichert in just a minute. So that's definitely an underlying fundamental from this book. I'd love for you to say more about kind of, you know, one of the things that I thought was really powerful from the book is this idea of um, boys kind of having to grow into a mask of masculinity. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. It's a a sobering, um, it's a sobering set of insights from researchers that have uh, uh, been looking into um, how do we convey you know, uh, uh, the norms of masculinity to our sons? How are they conveyed? When are they conveyed? And how consequential are they? And the sobering news is that uh, they come very early, as I suggested by talking about that mom of twins. Um, One researcher embedded herself for two years with four-year-old boys in a school outside of Boston and followed them for two years. And what she wrote was, what she, what she said was that at the outset, uh, they were direct, they were authentic, they were expressive, uh, they were able to be present, as she put it, in the relationship with her. They were themselves. But okay. over the course of the two years, they absorbed uh, cultural messages and cues about how, it was, how, how being a boy was supposed to look. And the way that they dressed, the way that they talked, the games that they played and who they played with all changed. And, and as she put it, they, they changed themselves from being present in relationships to pretending and posturing. Oh. They, they learned to act yeah. the part. And the, 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 the mm-hmm. consequence of that <clears throat> was that they were less present and less able to be themselves, they went behind essentially a, a, a role, a pretense, a part. Um, there's a, 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 another bit of research that I talk about in the book conducted by an organization in D.C. And they, they call it the man box study, but it's basically um, asking uh, 18 to 29-year-olds in three different countries, um, uh, first off, uh, uh, you know, are, are there certain um, ways that they need to behave, uh, attitudes they need to reflect as men? And where did those messages come from? And then what, what, what are those messages uh, correlated with in terms of other outcomes? And what they found was that indeed... Uh, you know, pretty significant percentages of those young men uh, feel boxed in by those cultural norms. They receive those messages, 60% said they received them from their parents, as well as from other sources. And this is the the really tragic part. The more uh, strongly those young men agreed with the norms. The, the, the more they conformed to the norms, the more they lived in the man box, the more anxious, the more depressed, the less happy, and even the more suicidal they were. Wow, that is powerful. In the book, you also you kind of talk about this idea of because of 
studies like the 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 one about the man box and and what happens to boys and young men and even adult men over time with this mask of masculinity and um, you kind of talk about this idea of being and creating a safe place for boys and i was wondering if you could say a little bit more about what does that actually look like in reality so you know if if this is the developmental context in which boys are are, are growing up, you know, we can't, we can't really protect our sons from this larger culture that surrounds them, that they're immersed in. Um, I know that when my sons were born, my first son in particular, we thought we could circle our wagons, you know, and, and really keep, keep these developmental threats away from him. But they really are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Um, and, and, and so yeah. what is the strategy to strengthen our son's resistance to the, the, the pressures and the seductions of this more negative cultural uh, view of masculinity. And the way that we do that, it goes back to that research I talked about, the four to six-year-old research, the research with four to six-year-olds. You know, the, the stronger they are anchored in a relationship, the stronger they're going to feel about being themselves and resisting uh, uh, pressures that might cause them, uh, might, might, might pull them away from uh, being, you know, invested in learning, being true to their hearts, being honest, having integrity, not hurting other people, remaining empathic to other people. You know, the more that uh, those boys feel that they're known and loved by someone, the stronger, the more assured they're going to be in resisting the peer pressures and the cultural pressures. The shakier the foundation, the more prone boys are to adopt hyper-masculine standards Mm -hmm. and to really go behind the mask, to really allow themselves to be boxed in. And, uh, the more at risk they are, really, for losing a hold of themselves. Yeah. So what I say, basically, is that if we want our sons to keep a hold of themselves, we have to keep a hold of them ourselves. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I see a parallel in, again, like I said, I have a teen and tween daughter. And so... I have been sensitive to, and I think a lot of women in my peer group are sensitive to um, trying to help them build a strong foundation in terms of like their bodies and body positivity and body acceptance. And so really trying to fill their minds and their feelings about themselves from an early age on with messages like all bodies are good bodies and you are strong and and all of these continued messaging that we that I try to model for them and then also just kind of put put pictures um, of that idea in front of them um, as a way to combat what is waiting for them outside of the walls of our house uh, with, you know, our culture's ideas about women and bodies. So I'm thinking as you're talking that maybe to the the parallel idea, parallel idea here is to really model and lean into and be really intentional about being relational with our boys and not and kind of maybe deconstructing our own ideas first about boys and relational um, 
you know, aspects that they have, and then really leaning into being very intentional about creating that whole kind of culture within our families, our homes, and in our communities. That's that's really well said, Meg. I, I think that, um, you know, when we think about, you know, there's so much anxiety currently about raising a boy. In the book, I talk about one study that found that expecting parents prefer at this point in time to have a girl over having a boy. I think it may be the first time in that study's history that that outcome has been found. And the reason is that parents feel that having a son is too uncertain. Mm. Yeah. I think we're scared. And I think that the, um, I think that the part of the reason we're scared is that we see the limitations more clearly of the old model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a good thing. But one, um, one researcher uh, uh, who's been following how uh, uh, younger generations are adapting to this very changed gender landscape says that gender vertigo is a common condition for all of us. And, you know, that, that unsteadiness, that feeling of being unclear uh, what, the, what the sure road ahead is, I think it, it leaves many parents in particular of boys anxious. And consequently, I think a lot of parents feel that they have to prescribe, they have to teach lessons to their sons, they have to tell yes. them what to think. Yeah. And the whole thrust of my book is I actually, I actually don't think that's the solution. Um, by and large, you know, when we adults try to tell younger people how they should be, what they pick up is that we we're kind of clueless about the realities of their life. Mm, yes. I work in it with a group of high school boys, for example, and we address different topics. And I'm just very conscious of the fact that, you know, whether it's relationships with each other or relationships with girls or relationships with their parents or pornography or substance use, that, that, you know, I know some things about those topics, but I don't really know what it's like for them because the yeah. world has changed since I was their age and they're the experts on their, you know, their, their, their lives. Yeah. But, that my job really as a parent or as a mentor or as a, you know, someone who works in schools, my job is to make a place where they can really acknowledge the realities that they're facing and they can feel like someone knows them, that they're yes. not alone. They're not on their own. Someone knows them and supports them, cares about them. Yeah, that is so deeply important and really at the heart of so much of what you say in this book. And and I'm wondering if I can just ask you really quickly one last question before we wrap up. I, I know a lot of our awesomes who are listening are, are women. Maybe a lot of them are mothers or they're classroom teachers or whatever. So we may be pretty quick to, you know, really accept this idea of boys are relational. Well, okay, good. Relational, that feels like my first language. So, you know, we feel excited maybe to jump into this. What can we do, though, if the fathers of our children, our partners, our husbands, what if they're a little resistant to this idea about using the power of connection? Because maybe they are stuck in the paradigm that they grew up in um, that does not really want to acknowledge this relational aspect of boys. Is there, is there some way we can sort of speak to that? Maybe, maybe the resistance comes from a place of fear. Um, like you were saying, is there, how can we begin to have these conversations with the dads of our, of our boys? Yeah, I would say something to mothers 
first and something to dads. Um, I would say uh, that, um, you know, the, 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 I, I was on a radio show recently and, and uh, someone, a, a man phoned in and he put it very succinctly. He said, isn't all of this new fangled way of thinking about boys uh, going to turn them into softer snowflakes? Ah, yes. I aren't, can aren't, hear aren't some we, men in my life saying that same thing. <laughs> yep. You know, aren't, aren't we, aren't we uh, coddling them and encouraging them to be dependent and not helping them be strong and tough the way that they'll need to be to really be successful in life? And, you know, how I answered that man is how I would, uh, you know, what I would say to both the, the men and the women uh, in your listening audience, that what we know about strength, about grit, about perseverance in the face of adversity, about the ability to resist pressures and to hold on to yourself, what we know about those qualities is that they, 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 they're more likely when someone feels like he's backed and has unconditional, uh, kind of a home base, an unconditional uh, ally. And if we can provide that kind of ally, that kind of uh, support, that kind of um, holding environment for our sons, they're going to be stronger, more virtuous, and more able to be themselves better able to swim against the current of the popular culture that's not going to take them anywhere good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and, and so I think that uh, for mothers, what I would say is, you know, you all are getting targeted with an insidious form of misogyny that still, I think, believes that it takes another man to raise a boy to manhood mm -hmm. and that you women should worry that if you keep your sons too close, the mama's boy myth, one, right. one journalist calls it, you're likely to undermine or erode their masculinity. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, in fact, it's, it's just not true, you know, because mothers still do a very large proportion of the, of the emotional labor in families, the nurture of, of children and families. If a mother backs off from a boy, if she, if she becomes worried that she shouldn't keep him too close and simply lets him go, he may have nowhere else to go but to the peer group. Yeah. And what, what we know happens there, you know, if a boy is living in the peer group, he's going to be more vulnerable to those hyper-masculine norms, those exaggerated norms, and less himself, less strong, more confined. Yeah. What I would say to dads is, um, you know, we dads tend to worry also that we should teach our sons lessons about being men, you know, how to do it. And uh, if, if we become preoccupied with teaching our sons about masculinity at the expense of supporting them to be themselves, to hold on to themselves, to be good human beings, we're going to miss the boat. Um, we're going to be communicating to them that they must fit themselves into a box, uh, you know, become a certain type of man rather than trust that the kind of man that they are is good, good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is, um, 
It's very powerful, very powerful message for both moms and dads that are out there listening. And again, anybody who in any capacity has little boys, teenagers, young adults in their lives. This, this is, I really believe that this book has the capacity to really change some family dynamics for the better. So I'm so thankful, Dr. Reichert, again, for your time and coming to Sort of Awesome. Great to be with you, Meg, and, and nice to have a chance to, to uh, speak to your audience of, of mothers and fathers. Thank you again. And again, you guys, the book is called How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. It's available at Amazon and wherever you buy books. So thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see y'all next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.